Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, crew? Welcome back. Welcome to episode 111. This week, returning to Chat with Traders for a second time is David Bush, who was first on episode 23. David first began as a discretionary trader more than 20 years ago, but over time, he's developed into almost purely a quant trader, and he's exceptionally good at what he does. David's been the first place winner of two real money trading competitions in recent years. Last time David was on, we spoke fairly extensively about his path as a trader and a high-level overview of his process. This time around, we covered plenty of new ground, exploring David's process in greater depth. Also, I particularly liked David's comments towards the end about intensity not time. That'll probably make more sense when you get to it. But anyway, uh, full show notes for this episode can be found at chatwithtraders.com slash 111. And I really hope you can gain something from this. Please welcome to the podcast, David Bush. Hey, Dave. How's it going, man? Good. How are you doing today? I am doing very well. You're a bit under the weather, are you? I am. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a stretch, man. It's been a stretch, you know, just uh, busy and pushing it. So under the weather, but you know, just uh, I sound horrible, but otherwise I'm all right. <laughs> no, you don't sound too bad. All right, good. <laughs> what is it? Just a, a basic cold? Yeah, it's a basic cold. Yeah, I uh, normally I normally avoid it, or it's very light. This, you know, this year or this winter, I've been. Uh, you know, I've been sick uh, twice like this in the last like three weeks. <laughs> so it's just this one was self-induced, I think, from just uh, trying to fit this R workshop in at the end of the week. I mean, you know, I'm glad I have that knowledge now, but uh, I'm paying for it. You know what I mean? Because I had to fit everything around it, and you were you were caught in my whirlpool of rescheduling. And anyways, so <laughs> yeah, self-induced yeah. problem. We've, you've got me interviewing you at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you're the man. I'm so sorry. I was about to ask, and then I, yeah, because I didn't do the calculation in my head, but wow. 
No, not a worry. Not a worry. I appreciate it. No place I'd rather be. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen this time of day before on a Sunday morning? Or uh... Of course, of course. I'm usually up <laughs> well before this anyway, so I'm all just right, teasing. All right, good. Excellent. So how was the uh, workshop? How was that? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was an introduction, uh, but it was two days of an introduction, you know, so very two very full days. Um, my, you know, there's, there's, two, there's two ways I look at it. There's my goal, which is, first of all, just to learn about R, you know, I really knew not, not a lot. And then, you know, other than, yeah, statistics focused and whatever. Um, but I, my goal is really just to be a better manipulator of data. I mean, we might have talked about this the other day briefly, but, you know, just uh, have my data set up in a much more, um, you know, usable, uh, automated, you know, updating way. And then to be able to actually hands-on just more quickly, um, you know, manipulate it. So, so basically, I feel like I right now have the skills. I mean, it would, I'd be very slow at first, but that's how I'm going to cut my teeth. I have the skills to, you know, just import and join a ton of Excel files. And it's, you know, it's so quick, you know, in R, it's just like, it's instant, you know, and you can hyper thread if you want and all that stuff. So, so that's, you know, I feel like, great, mission accomplished. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I need to sit down and spend hours doing it, but if I can just become awesome at mutating and joining Excel files, um, that'd be great. You know, I mean, and then I got to peek into the, the, the other levels, which are like, well, you can do anything, you know what I mean? Just like most code, you know, it's, you can do insane machine learning. You can use it for graphic uh, portfolio analytics, whatever, you know, and, and obviously there's a lot of packages that people have already created, which is cool. So I got to avoid the temptation to go deep into the, deep into the weeds, like, you know, trying to solve the world's problems, uh, through R and just like have that one skill, you know? So I, I thought it was great. Oh, that's excellent, man. That's very good. Yeah. So you hadn't coded an R previously before this, like at all? No, exactly. Exactly. No, I've never, you know, I didn't have R installed until, you know, like 24 hours before the thing. So no, didn't know R and, uh, but I feel, um, you know, like that that data manipulation thing. I feel like, I mean, I I know I'm going to run into ball, into walls. I mean, you always do when you're coding. You know, uh, anything. It's always longest at the front, which makes it tough to go through. You know, through the barriers. But we we did in class. You know, it was a very hands-on thing. You know, um, basically the guy would talk for like five or ten minutes, and then he'd be like, "All right, here's what you're, you're going to do now." You know, and that's the way the whole two days was, which was good, you know. So I already succeeded at, you know, at doing probably 75% of what I want to do anyways. Now it's just getting good at it and, you know, setting up some scripts and... Yeah, yeah, just putting in the work. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, man. Oh, excellent. So I know you've got a programmer who you work with. Yeah. Do you... Prior to this, did you have any programming knowledge yourself? Like, were you coding in a different language beforehand? Well, what what I've done, uh, I always think of it like he's a capital P programmer. I mean, like he's trained, he's that's his whole schooling, that's his PhD. He knows probably tons of languages and and is facile in most. You know, for me, you know, I I started coding in just proprietary trading platform languages like TradeStations, Easy Language, or uh, Mechanica's. Um, 
language, um, you know, what else, uh, trading blocks, you know, so in other words, they're all just kind of proprietary trading specific language is uh, a pure language, something I, I have not ever learned. I mean, I, I have some Python scripts and so forth. Uh, and some utilities that that use Python, but that's because the PhD programmer wrote them for me. Um, so, but uh, so I'm excited. I mean, I actually, you know, I mean, that's another level of just well, learning R and be able to do things. Obviously, it's much easier to grasp this language. Um, you know, having known the language of other platforms and syntax and, and stuff like that. So it becomes, you know, it felt like familiar, actually, which was kind of nice, right? I mean, there's a first language that's just a purely its own thing um, with many applications, not trading specific. And yet, you know, it felt familiar. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think R is quite similar to Python in many ways. So if you've seen a few Python scripts uh, previously, then I'm sure you know, you could probably interpret um, R reasonably well, like sort of on a basic level, I'd presume. Interesting. Yeah, I was, I was a little disturbed uh, when somebody asked a question that was in my head. I mean, I just want to ask it, but I wasn't going to ask in front of the class and waste everyone's time. But, you know, one guy who was, was really pretty good, he was picking up everything quickly, he obviously had a lot of programming knowledge already. And, you know, he at the very end, he's just like, so what's the difference between Python and R, in your opinion? You know, and the, and the instructor was like, I don't really know. I don't know Python. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> okay. I was like, really? You know, it's like, are you just so uninquisitive? Because I was wondering. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, no, many similarities, I think. So, what was your what was your uh, preference to learn R? Like, why did you decide to pick R? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if this um, business analytics center, uh, University of Cincinnati, if it had offered uh, intro to Python two day workshop, I would have done that. You know what I mean? They just did intro to R for for whatever reason. So. Um, that was it. I just, either one I would have gone to. Um, it wasn't like I sought out R. I knew that I'd get a really quality experience because I've took a two day Tableau, you know, data, data viz workshop. So now also in other news, um, since we last spoke, I think that was episode 23. I meant to check before we actually got on the call, but it was a early twenties anyway. So for anyone listening, if you want to go back, check it out early 20s when David Bush was first on the podcast. I was speaking to you not long after you'd just won, I think it was Battlefin, if I'm getting that correct. Correct, right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also won another quant trading competition since then. Is that right? It is right, yes. And I'm trying to think now. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was uh, first place in this uh, NAME, which is an acronym, National Association of Active Investment Managers. They had a uh, strategy competition. So actually, I, I trying to think whether it was purely a systematic or quantitative contest. I actually think it was not, but um, certainly that that was certainly the focus of those who are presenting. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a great, um, it's a great group, uh, you know, great organization, great, very welcoming, uh, people. And, and the competitors actually were, you know, were very impressive. I was, uh, certainly pleased to win, but, uh, you know, happy to meet the other guys. So how many other people were you up against? I remember Battlefin was something like between two to 3000 people. 
<laughs> that was a lot of people. Yeah, they had a, tons of applicants, and then it got narrowed down into three groups of maybe nine competing over a few months, something like that. And it involved the presentation in Manhattan as well. Uh, this was quite different. This, uh, and I don't know how many applicants there were, but there were present. There were a couple of series of presentations, and uh, the first uh, presentation was uh, in the fall of um, maybe 2015, I think. And that was uh, maybe uh, 15 to 20 people. It might have been 16 rings a bell, so I'm not exactly sure. And then that got narrowed down to maybe six, if I'm remembering correctly. And then we, the six or so of us uh, presented in, uh, in the spring of last year. And um, yeah, it was an interesting group. I mean, you had individual uh, you know, traders uh, with a strategy they had created. You had uh, you know, small money management firms with proprietary strategies, a group of strategies. You had, uh, I think, two actively managed mutual funds, um, which alone, uh, you know, it's funny because on one hand, some traders so say, oh, mutual funds, you know, what, what, you know, what good is a mutual fund? I'm going to trade the market in my self-directed way, um, so on and so forth. Uh, but to actually launch and, you know, take a active strategy, put it in the mutual fund wrapper and get that out to market and, and make that a viable reality is actually quite challenging. So, you know, I was impressed with all of them, uh, bottom line. Right. And during the competition, was it all trading real money? That's a good question. My strategy uh, is real money. It has a model, but it uh, it's approaching six-year anniversary of real money trading in March of this coming uh, of this year now, uh, in terms of the other strategies, obviously the mutual funds, uh, real money naturally, and um, you know millions of dollars, and and then um, you know there were a couple other strategies. I, I you know I'd say predominantly there there might have been one that wasn't. I think that was something like that. Okay, so the strategy that you traded during the competition was the same strategy that you've been trading for the past, like you said, six years. That's correct. Yeah, it's an equity strategy. So it's blue chip stocks, uh, mega cap equities, and that's been live since 2011 in the spring or uh, late winter, spring, March 2011. Right. Very interesting. I always thought that, I don't know why I thought this, but like a lot of uh, traders who enter into these competitions were trading like purpose-built strategies to try and win that, particularly, that particular competition, but um, obviously not the case. Well, it's interesting. I think there are. I think you're spot on that there are these competitions that are exactly that, where uh, they're essentially orienting the whole approach, the whole investment approach or trading approach to winning. Uh, you know, draw down, be damned, uh, whatever long-term efficacy. Who cares? You know, just win uh, the competition. But you know, these competitions. Funny because I, I never set out to be a competition winner. I'm I'm thrilled to to be one a couple times now. But really, um, these just kind of fell in my lap in the sense that I learned about them uh, by uh, one means or another and decided to enter. Usually at the last minute, uh, often right. <laughs> Right at the deadline, I think maybe maybe in each case, and uh, you know why not? You know uh, this this could be interesting, and you know they were not that kind of competition. They were really about um, the whole picture. You know, so to 
to the credit of each of these groups, Battlefin and Name, their competitions were rounded in the sense that there's a presentation you had to defend. Uh, you had to defend your uh, returns and risk and your thinking, uh, your your model. Um, you had to defend all of that and much more. And of course, uh, you know, had to have, uh, you know, good returns or I suppose for those who didn't have real money returns, you know, uh, had to really defend their hypothetical models. Uh, but it wasn't about, yeah, it wasn't about gaming and competition and just winning, you know, it was really about, um, the strategy and the integrity of the strategy. So, uh, maybe that's a bit different in the competition world. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll I mean, I think that sounds much better. It's much more realistic is probably one way to describe it. So you know how you said you had to like defend your strategy? Was there like a panel of judges that you presented to and did they ask you any questions? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Both cases there, uh, there was a panel. So in the, uh, you know, in the first competition, um, you know, the battlefield competition, which I'm sure has evolved. I don't know how it's done right now, but, uh, at that time it was, you know, uh, go into a wall street shop and, uh, there's a meeting room and, you know, you walk in and put your slides up and you're on the hot seat, you know, and, um, you're just going to get, um, you know, make a little presentation and then you're going to get grilled. Uh, and it was similar for name, although it was a bit more formalized, you know, there was a whole, um, you know, under 200 or however many people were there, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the room, in the theater, whatever. And then there was a panel of, uh, maybe four or five judges, something like that. And, uh, uh, people I've come to know actually, um, since, and, you know, some sharp, some sharp people for sure. And, uh, very, um, very probing questions, you know, really just, um, how, and I'll tell you, here's my, here's my takeaway from watching others. Uh, in one case I got to watch others present, uh, in, in the other case I did not, but, where I got to watch other, um, you know, strategy creators, traders, managers, whoever they were, present uh, and defend their strategies, really where people would fall uh, from from uh, from a great height. Maybe they've been doing great up to that point. It was always related to risk. Every single time they would just unwrap because if you started, if the, if the panel would start to peel that onion around how they thought about risk and this kind of risk and that kind of risk and maybe sector risk and market risk and correlation risk and on and on and on, you start to peel back that onion and, and some of these, uh, very, you know, sharp guys, uh, either just weren't as prepared as they could have been because they probably have answers, but they didn't articulate them well, which, you know, didn't work in their favor or, um, or, you know, in some cases may have been a little light on the risk defense, uh, and the risk knowledge and really having thought through every facet of that diamond. So that's something that I think about a lot is, uh, I think that that did help me because I've, uh, uh, I thought a lot about that, and and certainly that was part of my development process. Uh, it made my development process longer, actually, uh, for that strategy because I was constantly looking at another facet of the at, uh, of the diamond to to use that same analogy. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, that's very cool to hear. Um, I've made a note here to uh, ask you a bit more about risk controls um, as we get going, but um, 
yeah, I'm definitely going to um, pick back up on that. So last time when you were on, Dave, we spoke mostly about your path from starting out as a discretionary trader to becoming a quantitative trader now. Uh, this time, I think we're going to pick up on a few of those topics and go a little deeper um, as well as cover some new ground. So one of the first things I'd, I'd really like to talk to you about or ask you about is uh, things around strategy development. So starting out right at the very beginning, when you come to develop a new strategy, do you have any predetermined metrics uh, for what will be a good strategy in your mind, like goals or objectives before even trying to find something? Right. Great question. And that is, that's something I, if I could go back, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with my strategy, but there are times where I've thought, hmm, uh, you know, I wish I could go back and maybe rethink, um, you know, rethink a couple uh, aspects of the strategy. Um, you know, obviously with a lot of perspective, uh, having managed it now for almost six years. Again, mostly I'm I'm very happy, but you do learn. You know, you do gain a perspective on uh, you know what uh, a great objective function might be and, so, and, and, and many other metrics, which I, ch- I can get into. Uh, basically, uh, one thing that I think that, uh, you know, a, a new programmer, a new developer, uh, and I've certainly talked to a number of, uh, of people aspiring to either make that transition from discretionary to systematic uh, or simply uh, finally uh, deepen their, uh, their knowledge of uh, quantification you know, quantification and, and develop a model and so on. Um, there's some questions I think that, that those people should ask is, first of all, who's the model for? Is this for pure uh, personal or personal entity or family uh, trading, for example, or is this for other people's money? Uh, that's, that's a huge question right away. Uh, and one that uh, uh, really should be answered because if it is, uh, you know, for other people's money, uh, then one has to be thinking about um, just a broad regime of, of questions from uh, regulations to, you know, that, that can inform what asset classes uh, one might choose to model. Uh, and that's usually not a question because most people have, uh, you know, some, you know, leaning towards, uh, you know, Forex or, uh, you know, futures uh, or stocks or whatever it is. But, um, you know, from regulations to, you know, drawdown tolerance, your trade your personal drawdown tolerance might be way have a much greater threshold for drawdown than uh, you know than a client, for example, uh, for those people who are other who are managing other people's money. So, you know, that's one consideration. Um, more very specifically, uh, having a um, an objective function. You know, this is kind of the other extreme of now just the strategy itself. How are you going to determine your um, your end result? Let's say you've gone through, you're towards the end of the development process and you're choosing between, um, you know, a couple different sizing methodologies or you're stepping across uh, your parameter stepping various sizing approaches and finding where, uh, what sizing of your portfolio of systems, for example, uh, is optimal for, uh, for you. Well, how do you, you know, how do you do that? That can be a number. Uh, one can develop 
a, um, a specific objective function, a formula is all that is. Um, you know, a simple formula that's just scores essentially all of these results from various sizing approaches and therefore is rankable according to your objective. So for instance, to make it a bit more specific, if one uh, is looking for a, um, an annualized return that is um, some multiple of the max drawdown across all years of the back test, for example, that, you know, that's a number that every uh, strategy run is going to have. And uh, that could be, that formula could be part of a, an objective function with maybe two other similar metrics, right? And it all gets rolled into one formula. It outputs one number. That's then your uh, objective function. That's what you're trying to maximize. And of course, you're trying to maximize it without burning up the past. That's a whole other issue, uh, burning up your data, you know, finding a clever way through the past instead of a robust um, set of rules and a strategy that can generalize well going forward, walking forward into the future. Obviously, that's the, that's the real objective. But just in terms of, of your question, and hopefully I'm answering it at least in part, you can have an objective function uh, that actually is a metric. And it's a, a formula that can be pretty simple, usually made up of a few different metrics. And essentially, it's a score. And you can score your, uh, score your end results. Okay. So... In that, in in your response, there you gave an example about um, a metric of drawdown compared to return, um, something along those lines. Let's say you also had a couple other um, metrics that you wanted to achieve from a strategy. So let's say going into this, I want to achieve a sharp ratio uh, of one or greater. You know, max drawdown of twenty percent, something like that. How much would you be willing to vary on these metrics? So, how much would uh, I be able? I'd be willing to vary in terms of. Well, I have this great output here that I feel great about, but it has a really crummy sharp, and I wanted a higher exactly. sharp. Is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, right. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, and these are. Uh, you know, very great questions and not always ones that I was thinking about. My, my number one, um, you know, my objective function was essentially pretty simple. It was pretty much what I articulated along with a couple of the things, which essentially was, you know, positive in all years, um, minimal drawdowns and an average annualized return that was a multiple of the worst drawdown figure. Uh, average drawdown is not really something you should look at, in my opinion. Uh, perhaps there's a case where that is important, but max drawdown uh, and related drawdowns, drawdowns that were close, uh, those are what you're going to be living through in the future, and you're probably going to be living through worse. Your worst drawdown is always going to come in the future. So um, that was part of my max, my, my objective function. Uh, in terms of other um, uh, other factors, um, you know that you know other metrics that maybe it didn't live up to as well. Um, you know, I didn't experience that, but I didn't set out with a a smorgasbord um, of requirements. I really set out to do 
what I said, which is without having full exposure to the market, to be able to uh, stock market in this case, you know, benchmark being S and P 500 total return index, uh, you know, including the dividends and so forth. Uh, with that as a benchmark, you know, obviously I don't want to be well, maybe not obviously, but I don't want to be uh, fully exposed to that all the time. Uh, some correlation is okay in 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 my approach. Uh, other approaches are you know non correlated and they strive for no correlation. That's a different you know whole approach and discussion. But I didn't have a big list of requirements, so um, I think it's a discovery process, though. In other words words, one should lead, um, you know, one's development, there's going to be discoveries along the way um, that are probably going to be surprising. And especially if you're coding a cherished notion, like, uh, you know, every time this makes a 30-day high, this market and, you know, this other factor and this other other factor are happening simultaneously. Well, that's definitely uh, you know that that results in a, a reversion to the downside. You know, and then you test that and you really start to see you know that's a ridiculous notion that really um, it's you were subject to a confirmation bias where you you thought that's what was happening, but you were only noticing the times it happened, and actually there's so many other times. Uh, in fact, the majority of times, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't work or uh, the way you have um, the, uh, you know, the entry and exit and the risk management isn't working. So that the discovery process may lead you to abandon uh, some cherished notions. It may lead you to abandon some uh, previously cherished metrics, too. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com chat to learn more. When developing a strategy, you know, still during this development phase, can you speak about how you think about simplicity and is there a place for complexity in what you do also? Right. You know, simplicity, and this probably is touching on our last conversation, but simplicity is a huge thing for me because uh, my, for two reasons. First of all, that's just generally philosophically resonates with me that simple things are more robust. Uh, you know, there's a Mandel, Mandel Broad quote, which is very beautiful in this regard, um, related to simplicity. Uh, simple rules um, and so forth. But also, um, you know, my study of, you know, kind of first generation commodity trend following uh, traders, um, and there's some great books out there on this group, uh, really is emphasized the simplicity as well. And so I was influenced by that, even though I'm not in this strategy, I'm not doing futures and I'm not doing trend following um, in the pure sense. I'm doing equities and mostly reversion, so almost the opposite in a sense. Nevertheless, 
I was influenced by their emphasis on simplicity. So that that has served me well because the the thing about complexity is what ends up happening is if you're, uh, I mean, in all power to those who can have really really complex, uh, con uh, maybe convolute is not the right word, but ornate code and complex rules and if thens you know out the wazoo. If they can get that to work, that's fantastic. All power to them. However, what typically happens with most people who try to do that is they create an artifact, basically a really, really elaborate way through the past, right? Because all financial models rely on the past. And so we want to avoid complex travel routes that are overly uh, tied to one place in time, you know, they're, they're overly specific that that is too complex. What you really want is, you know, going forward, you want to be able to generalize well, because data, you know, markets are not stationary. Um, the, uh, the data can change regimes can happen, you know, decimalization can happen in the stock market. Uh, regulations can change, uh, markets. Uh, you know, there's just so many things that that change uh, obviously technology you know market microstructure is is hugely changed uh in the last 10 years you know i think the average shares uh stock uh stock trade was like 2000 shares maybe in 2005 or 2006 and you know 10 years later or thereabouts it's like 200 shares might even be less but you know that's a general idea micro uh, structure um can evolve so basically um, long-winded way of saying that you know it's important to uh, to really have simple rules that can can really walk through and navigate markets that are going to be different in nature in the future than they are on now and on the data which is yesterday that you tested on. Um, if you're overly specific, overly complex, you're probably going to just break apart in the future. It's going to come unglued because it was just um, um, too brittle. Uh, you know, it's funny. You can even see this uh, on certain parameters. For instance, um, and maybe this is too much detail, but you can you can uh, find you can do a parameter step, let's say, on one piece of logic, one variable in the test, and you can find. Uh, a parameter shelf, like a, think of it, imagine like a ledge. You can find this narrow little ledge, you know, above a, you know, a thousand foot precipice that you can walk successfully. And boy, that would have been great in the past if you had used that parameter. And then you can step right, um, you know, one parameter um, to the right, so to speak, of the one you found that worked and you're falling off into the precipice because it didn't work. That's not a robust uh, piece of trading logic. You know, if if you are narrowly finding the, the rule that worked and you're not seeing that one wrong move and you fall off a cliff. So that's that's the over that's the risk of overcomplexity. All right. So I just want to pick up on that. So I, I think just to sort of summarize what you're sort of saying there is let's say your strategy uses a a moving average of 20 for some parameter it's just one of the trading rules it, it involves a moving average of 20 
if that moving average was 19 or 21 or 22, what you're saying is that if that produced completely different results, like uh, vastly different results, it's it's quite a brittle strategy. Am I understanding you correctly there? Yeah, perfectly said. Perfectly said. In fact, you can just replace what I said with that, Aaron. That was perfectly said. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I actually remember when uh, when you were on last time, you described these uh, uh, these commodity CTA um, uh, futures traders as their their strategies were so simple that they could actually be written down on a napkin and followed, and they made a lot of money doing that. So. Um, right. that's one thing that, that sort of stuck with me. Also, when you were on last time, you used this term, uh, degrees of freedom. And I think I kind of glossed over this. Um, I think that's maybe quite an important point, which, um, we didn't really go into too much. Can you talk to us about what you mean when you talk about degrees of freedom in a trading strategy and, and how it's a positive thing? Sure. Yeah. Now that relates to, uh, statistical significance. So the idea is, and it relates exactly to what we just discussed. So if one has uh, 20 data points, let's just make it real simple, rather than you know thousands of data points. If one has 20 data points and has 19 rules or 20 rules related to a system that works over those 20 data points, uh, or let's uh, you know put it in another way. You have maybe you have two thousand data points, but you have two thousand rules. There are no degrees of freedom, um, and you you have created most likely an artifact rather than something that is fact in a sense that can live on its own and work and generalize well going forward. So the idea is to have let's say those 2000 data points, but have a minimal number of rules um, so that therefore there are greater degrees of freedom in, and at the risk of being completely non-quantitative and non-statistical. I always think of, um, of Robert Frost, and I might butcher this, but he said something to the effect of, um, I don't know whether it was poetry or art, but I, I think it was specifically to poetry. I think he said, poetry is moving easy in harness. Because when you're developing this logic, uh, it is a harness, it is a constraint. And the rules are uh, are you know they're they're fastened right they're hard coded and they're fastened on the horse if you will, and yet you you ha they have to be able to you know the strategy has to be able to navigate the different terrain you know you have to be able to move easy in harness if you're um, if you're too um, confined you you have no degrees of freedom and and the strategy is not going to be viable so kind of a uh, a mixed answer to that, you know, partly uh, referring to the statistics of it, um, you know, of statistical significance, uh, and you know, and partly just uh, the way to imagine that, or at least the way I imagine that. Mm, mm. Um, also, just going back to when you were on last time, you you mentioned that uh, back testing poorly is very easy to do, um, and I think that kind of leads us into the next step after sort of thinking about your strategy idea. How do you actually go about backtesting that? And what are some of the ways that one can backtest poorly? Wow, there's so many, 
Aaron. Uh, how long is the interview? <laughs> as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say having poor data, that would be a bad starting place. You want high quality data. I met somebody, brief anecdote, I met a young guy who had an economics degree from a, uh, from a prestigious school and he was talking about a system that he would just started to develop on weekly data. And I talked, I, you know, I asked him about, well, weekly data. Okay. What about the, you know, in between those, those weekly data points or is there any, anything that have you done any research there into that massive gap of time between these weekly uh, closing data points? And, you know, and he hadn't. Uh, so, you know, you have to think about your frequency and what's, what's missing from your data. Uh, you know, if you use end-of-day data, well, you don't have that intraday low or high that maybe um, blew up your system or was too uncomfortable to keep trading. So one has to think right away about the data. What's the data I'm using? Is it good quality? And is it, what's it missing, possibly? So that's the first thing I would, I would say. Uh, secondly, um, if one creates a strategy and it looks phenomenal, but that developer really, really couldn't articulate what's going on. You know, back to the panel discussion that, you know, we, we had early as you were asking about these, um, you know, these competitions. Uh, if, if one couldn't be grilled and come up with really cogent answers as to what the logic is, why it's working, and be able to articulate one's investment process and one's edge, if you can't do that, that's probably a sign that you just created something that uh, you don't really understand and, and that probably has some flaws. So uh, maybe not necessarily a way to develop poorly, but that, that would be an issue to me. One really has to understand each aspect. Uh, you know, I have a strategy that has, it's a, it's a singular strategy, but it has nine systems within it. And a tenth is being added related to adding a positive volatility element. And you know, each of those systems was, um, it, you know, is very familiar to me. Uh, it's, it's was not a hodgepodge of, uh, uh, of rules and logic that I don't really understand. So, you know, in my case that works for me. And I think that's probably important for most developers. Uh, you know, a machine learning process is, is, uh, is different. One should really understand that. It's a lot to understand there. Maybe, um, you know, the, 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 um, the whole process is finding things, that you may, may never have come up with. That's a different thing. But if you're doing kind of traditional development, I think you should be familiar with uh, the, the ideas um, and the logic and be able to articulate it. Um, you know, so those are, those are two ways, uh, I would say, um, not being statistically significant. So, you know, if you have a, uh, if you have 30 trades and it's a phenomenal system that works on the lumber market and yet you only have 30 trades, uh, in your model and, you know, is that, is that meaningful? You know, that, that's a statistical significance question and a degrees of freedom question and a robustness question. You know, better you have thousands of data points, not just 30. Uh, so I could go on, but th those are a few. I'll probably think of more later and circle back. Yeah. So just to pick up on that last point there where you said, um, you know, it needs to have statistical significance. You know, if, if there's only 30 trades, 30 data points in your 
uh, back test, it's not very significant. It doesn't really tell you that much. Every trade is different in this sense, but for you, what's sort of a rule of thumb for something that is statistically significant? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I, for, for my strategy, uh, let's see, I think they're essentially, um, generally speaking, there are about maybe 12 to 15,000 data points and, um, you know, under, uh, under 50 rules perhaps in total, you know, that's something actually I'm, I'd have to go back and, and quantify. I might be off there a little bit, but in other words, there is, I have a very, very low rule to, uh, data point, uh, you know, number and, um, ratio. So that, that, that was important to me just to have a lot of data and to have uh, a lot of degrees of freedom, you know, back to that discussion. Okay. So you said somewhere between 12 to 15,000. Um, obviously that's very relevant to you. You're trading a universe of, of many, many stocks. I'm not sure how many exactly. So you've naturally, there's going to be a lot of data points in that. Um, for someone who might just be starting out, let's say they've got a strategy that only trades on uh, one particular product um, or across you know, a very small universe, would you say maybe something like a few hundred trades is going to give you some significance? Yeah, my, my answer to that would be uh, most likely yes. And secondly, is, is the, does the logic work well on related markets. So if one has a great, uh, 10 year, um, you know, note futures strategy, uh, does it work on the 30 year futures? Does it work on the five year notes? Um, uh, you know, that this is, um, you know, this is something that I would, uh, I would investigate. Um, that would, you know, go for stocks. Obviously, if one had a, a stock-specific strategy, can it work over a portfolio of stocks, not just a single name? Um, you know, I I'm a believer in in the portfolio approach, but but it really differs. Uh, you know, uh, with stocks, that's that's quite helpful, um, and working the sectors within uh, within the stock market that uh, rotation in and out and so forth, even if it's fairly short term. But I, I, yeah, I would think a few hundred data points and does that same set of logic, the same rules, uh, do they work on related markets? Probably not as well, but do they at least have a positive expectation? Uh, that, that's something I'd look for. If it falls apart on every other market except the one that you uh, developed, that is um, probably a red flag. Okay. I'm glad you added that last bit at the end because that was going to be my next question. I was going to say like, what if it doesn't work on, you know, like you said there, the 10 year uh, note, and then you try it on the 30 year note um, and it sort of falls apart, then that is an obvious red flag. So um, yeah, thanks for adding that. Now, here's something I want to ask you a few questions around um, and that's curve fitting. So we've probably already touched on some things that are relevant to curve fitting already, but yeah, let's just let's just break this down. So, what measures do you take to reduce curve fitting? Well, you know, I think we've already discussed nearly all of them, actually, because it's uh, avoiding 
a too high rule to data ratio, right? So in other words, minimize the rules uh, and the logic, uh, avoid complexity. Uh, you know, simplicity doesn't have to be simplistic. It can be sophisticated yet simple. Uh, most most formulas, you know, that are really powerful are incredibly elegant, like the fractal formulas. Um, I have a book on, and I'm going a little, maybe a little, you know, um, tangent here, Aaron, but um, you know, I'm I'm fascinated with really complex um, or seemingly complex things, uh, you know, phenomena and nature and so forth, and and the fact that many of them can be reduced to really elegant, simple formulas. Uh, obviously, not not all the time, but um, that is often the case. So. Uh, I think we have talked about a lot of them. You know, it's really avoiding the complexity, um, embracing the simplicity, having simple logic that can generalize well, um, quality of data, uh, and and in terms, let's see, more specific, maybe something I haven't said. Um, if one is uh, not reserving data, and that's something we haven't talked about, so this is this is critical. If one is not reserving data um, that never gets touched. The, the trading logic, the whole development process never sees this data. This data is completely quarantined like it has the bubonic plague, you know, just sealed off, never gets seen. That data should be seen once and only once, um, purely out of sample. Uh, most people, uh, developers don't you know, they don't do that. Obviously, sophisticated, more scientifically oriented, you know, modelers are going to do that every time. However, um, you know, your maybe average trader who just says, hey, I want to get into, you know, trading logic now and develop something quantitative or systematic might not uh, be rigid about that. And that's that's crucial. So that's that's very important. One has to develop and develop and then flash that data once essentially across that out of sample data and you know if it uh if that doesn't work um you know you really have to go back to the drawing board um and you also have to realize that if that doesn't work and then you go back and tweak it some more on your you know your development data your testing data your training data essentially uh, and then you go, you know, you, you are now, that data is not out of sample anymore uh, because it's informing your changes. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the strategy was great on the out, out of sample data, except for whoops, that, you know, 9-11 or something, you know, in market terms, it was pretty horrible in other terms, of course, horrible. But, uh, and then you go, well, gosh, if I just, uh, you know, change the holding time, I could have, have avoided holding in you know, to that day and avoided that drawdown. And suddenly now my results look great. Well, you know, you just use your out of sample data to, um, you know, you just burned that up too, because that's no longer out of sample. It just informed your further development. Now, what data do you have a second set of data you can test on? That would be a good idea too, in that case. So I would say that's, a, that's uh, something we haven't talked about that's really important to avoid the curve fitting, uh, or at least to verify that you most likely have not curve fit. Yeah, that's a very good point that you do highlight there is, you know, once you have um, run your strategy or your idea over your out of sample data, 
um, and then you go to make some changes and do it again, that is essentially all now in sample data. Um, so, you know, it's just something that you need to be aware of for sure. Are there any telltale signs that you have overfed? Well, <laughs> that, that, that summary or that equity curve when you go and, and go to the out-of-sample data and it looks completely different than your very smooth uh, development equity curve, obviously that can be a glaring, hard, you know, impossible to ignore um, sign that you have uh, developed a curve fit model. You know, obviously, uh, real performance, you, you, you um, launched that strategy on, uh, on real money uh, now, and uh, you are not seeing, you, you're immediately breaking um, metrics that shouldn't have been broken. Uh, maybe you, you have, uh, maybe the worst data, the worst drawdown perhaps in all of your uh, backtest period um, was, uh, you know, was 5% or 10%. And you're, you're breaking that within the first month of trading. That's, um, that's certainly conceivable that that could happen. Uh, if, uh, perhaps it's a similar market condition type of scenario, but that, that could also be a very bad sign that, you know, you, you have a curve fit, uh, model that was just too fit to the past. And, and now that you're running, uh, through the present and future, um, you know, it's it's simply not generalizing well and and uh it's it's falling apart okay so with that in mind how do you begin trading a new strategy so you've let's say you've gone through all your development process you're happy with how it looks how do you actually start trading that in a live market do you start with small size do you trade it uh still on a demo account for a certain period of time or do you just go all in yeah, well, that's a good question. Obviously, that's that's going to differ by individual. I don't think there's there's one right answer to it. Obviously, there's just degrees of conservatism versus, um, you know, gunslinger. Really, uh, I, I'm never a gunslinger, so um, I I would wade in to the water and you know and and test it uh, test it that way. Um, on the other hand, uh, if one is paralyzed by fear, uh, one you know just is still afraid that the model maybe is is not uh, going to be effective. Um, you know, you could find reasons to delay for a really long time, uh, and and that you know that that's obviously not a good scenario either. So, you know, I, I'd say it's personal preference. Um, you know, perhaps the smartest way to go though would be to, uh, depending on the nature of the demo. I mean. You know, markets are going to be different, and the demos can be different. You know, if it's spot forex, and suddenly you have the greatest spreads where they really don't exist, in uh, you know where you'll be trading that strategy, then your your demo results are are meaningless, perhaps, unless you can build in those those assumptions. And that was another thing that we didn't touch on, but. Have very conservative assumptions. Don't assume that you'll get filled at your limit if you have limit orders in your model. Uh, look for those limit order prices to get exceeded and then count that as an entry, especially if you're looking to develop something with high capacity that would, that would be trading a lot of money. So anyways, short tangent on that, but I wanted to mention that. So, uh, in terms of rolling out, you know, a demo is a good idea, but just be honest. Look at the, look at the nature of the demo. Uh, is it really modeling uh, what your fills and commissions will be? Um, if it's not a situation where you need it to uh, 
be handling a lot of capacity, a lot of uh, money, assets, and so forth, then um, that's maybe not as important. But uh, of course, if if you're de- if you know one is developing a hedge fund strategy, for example, and it's a high capacity strategy, uh, you know how do you model market impact? Right, your your very order uh, in in the real market could uh, displace you know like elephant in the bathtub kind of situation. It could displace the marketplace. It could have a market impact, and your actual fill therefore would be quite different. So if you're in a really illiquid market. Uh, you have to think about that, or if you're trading huge size, or you intend to be, then that's a factor that you have to take into consideration. Now, most people are probably not going to be, you know, modeling uh, very for very illiquid markets, or necessarily trying to develop a, you know, one billion, uh, you know, dollar capacity strategy, for example. Um, but those are factors, and uh, you know, as you, th- th- my approach in those different scenarios would potentially be different um, in terms of the rollout in those, you know, in those scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Both are really good points. Um, Now, I don't think I've ever asked this question before, but I think it's a good question. (laughs) Do you have a life expectancy for your strategies? So once you start trading them, do you have, yeah, do you have an expectancy? Like, do you think that this is going to last for at least five years? Do you think it should last forever? Um, or are you with the sort of thought that, you know, are you with the thought that an edge will not last forever? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and somewhat unknowable. So I've met, uh, I'll answer the question in a second. I, I, I have met two, I, you know, I divide them into two buckets. Um, you know, other traders with quantitative systematic strategies. There is one group, um, in fact, a hedge fund that is quite um, sophisticated and pretty large, where essentially uh, they are constantly um, adding new edges, retiring edges, um, modifying, uh, you know, uh, updating parameters, so on and so forth. So it's like a constant living, breathing, evolving uh, strategy. And um, that would be hard uh, potentially for, uh, you know, for a small player to um, less very capable with, with uh, modeling and, and, uh, and data to keep track of that model over time. But, but that's one bucket, that's one approach, you know, and I've met, I've met some groups like that and some individuals like that. Then, then there are other groups or individuals that really stick to the, you know, to the, uh, Hey, I, this is it. This is my logic. And I, I, I stick with it and I really haven't modified it. You know, there was that one tweak, uh, back in, you know, 1992, but since then, you know, and there are those people out there and I've met them as well. So I, there's not one approach to, um, to how frequently one, um, there's, I don't think there's one, set of rules uh, that say you have to never alter your, your model or you should constantly alter it. There, there are diverging philosophies around that. In terms of my own life expectancy for the strategy, uh, you know, my, based on my model, um, my expectation is in, in its performance over um, almost six years is 
is that it should navigate, uh, continue to navigate markets well because, uh, again, back to simplicity, the simplicity of the logic. Um, you know, in my in my studying uh, of and, and testing of markets over a long period, uh, you know, other periods of time, you know, um, data that goes way back, uh, you know, 60s, 50s, and uh, and earlier on than that, where when you can get that data. You know, I have reason to um, to expect that you know that the strategy should continue to perform well, uh, but I don't necessarily think that it will be without some revamp. You know, there just to just to take one example. Uh, you know, obviously all stock traders uh, know or should know of you know the twenty nine crash, the eighty seven crash. Uh, you know, I've met many people who were wiped out in the eighty seven crash uh, or just took their puts off right before the crash. And you know that was a life changing decision. Um, trade you know the biggest option trader in the pit who um, you know lost it that day. Um, great guy. and you know and he, th- these were life changing events. But essentially, uh, I was I was going to mention '87. Essentially, that crash. There, there is a change. Um, there, there was a bit more propensity for momentum prior to that um, fall of '87, and after the crash, um, reversion uh, worked a little better in equities. So, you know, there are there are these. Obviously, it's a dramatic event, '87 crash, but. You know there are these changes in markets that can produce new tendencies, and so I think, to put it simply, that I will adapt to those hopefully. But I expect it, um, in lieu of something like that, I expect it to continue to uh, to perform over time, just due to the simplicity. Yeah, and I just want to throw in there, guys, if you want to hear more about the '87 crash and someone who actually made a lot of money on that day. Uh, listen to the interview with Blair Hull, who uh, bought the the lowest tick of the day on the '87 crash. Um, yeah, <laughs> pretty incredible. Good, good, rec- good recommendation. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, so, with all this being said, how do you monitor your performance when live trading? Like, how do you know everything is doing as it should be? Right. You know, I think that's a keep it simple um, approach. In other words. What what metric or metrics should one monitor? Um, you know, they're they're the obvious ones, such as um, you know rolling return over various windows of time. Uh, how, you know, how's that stacking up over time? Is it deteriorating? Is it uh, maintaining? Is it slight deterioration? Um, how does that compare to the model? Uh, they're uh, the same with drawdown. Um, you know, Dr. Howard Bandy has some great books on trading. I, you know, I highly recommend. And, uh, you know, in uh, at least one of them, he talks about, uh, you know, winning percentage can be, uh, can be a good monitor, for example, just, um, and he doesn't employ portfolio approaches, I don't think, but, uh, you know, on a trade basis for the system, you know, what's, what's the winning percentage, uh, over, um, various slices of time, you know, is that deteriorating? That could be, a uh, canary in the coal mine saying, you know, one's edge is decaying. And so I, so I, I don't think there's a one size fits all there, but um, I, I don't think it needs to be uh, incredibly complex either. So there are some basic measurements to essentially look for, um, for edge decay. And if I could rant, if I could rant real briefly for a moment, there is this, um, 
there's this objection to systematic and quantitative trading. Sometimes you hear people will say, hey, well, I've never seen a bad back test. Ha ha. Meaning, you know, uh, you know, it's a survivorship bias free thing, you know, uh, or, or a survivorship bias thing where, uh, you know, you only, only the good back tests win and every, all the other back tests are deleted or sitting in a, you know, in a hard drive somewhere. So, um, yeah, there's something to that. Um, the, obviously, uh, no one pursues a strategy with a negative mathematical expectation it has to be positive. That goes without saying, but um, so that objection bothers me uh, sometimes, like just because uh, the fact that people pursue winning models is is somehow inherently flawed. Uh, but what is flawed, and what every systematic or not flawed, but whatever whatever quant quant or systematic trader has to have an answer to is um, how your question. You know, how will you know when it's not working anymore? Um, you know, because some people do object. They say, "Hey, I you know I had a quant. Uh, you know, I." I um, had an experience with the quant strategy, and uh, you know it worked until it didn't, and then uh, it blew up, and you know uh, I'll never, I'll never touch one of those again. Um, you know, obviously I had a negative experience, uh, and um, you know it's really crucial for uh, I think every systematic or quantitative. Uh, you know, strategy, uh, trader or manager to have an answer to. To that edge decay question, and you know it work it works until it doesn't. You know what's your answer to that? Because if you don't have an answer to that, then uh, that that could be a problem. Whether you're just trading it for yourself or whether you're you know trying to you know go out into the world with it. Good run. I like it. Is there any other misconceptions you'd like to get off your chest? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, you know probably, but they they don't they don't come to. Um, to mind at the moment. Um, so uh, no, I think that's my singular rant right now. Okay. Okay. Now we were speaking uh, the other day prior to doing uh, this interview right now. Um, one of the things you, you mentioned to me was that you were thinking about sort of doing things a little bit differently this year. You'd like to kind of explore some new things. I'm not saying you're going to ditch your, your, your strategy that you've been running for six years. Obviously that's going to continue, but you're, you're, you're looking to explore and look into some new things as well uh, this year moving forward. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of those things may be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's always exciting. I, I think you have to be fascinated with markets um, to really succeed in them. Uh, maybe that's not true. Maybe there are people who are just cynical and just, uh, you know, develop strategies and, and they make a lot of money and they, they don't they care less about them. But, I, you know, it hasn't been my experience. I think most people are deeply interested and, and that fascination serves you well, especially, especially in hard times when uh, maybe you're in a drawdown. But, and so, you know, in terms of my development uh, list this year, it's it's something that I've really started to codify uh, in the last couple of weeks for the rest of the year. Is um, uh, relates to you know a couple of different areas. One is just having a better data infrastructure, um, and that uh, you know this is the decade of data, as a lot of people were, um, you know now call it have been calling it for a few years. Uh, where you know I forget the stats, you might know Aaron, but I mean you know just essentially the bulk of the world's data has been created in the last you know few years. <laughs> essentially, it's really just a phenomenal fact. However, close to the uh, truth, my summary is there, but. 
So essentially a better data infrastructure um, and uh, more tools to manipulate data in uh, essentially making, uh, you know, because data prep is really a lot of testing, um, whether you're doing, doing data visualization, um, you know, maybe it's non-market related, you know, doing word clouds or, um, you know, web scraping and then trying to find some intelligence through that or obviously in the trading uh, realm. Uh, simply uh, looking at correlations and looking for other relationships that might be interesting with, um, you know, new volatility indices related to, uh, you know, a strategy you already have. I mean, there's just so, it's just so, there's such a richness of possibilities. So having the data, uh, you know, a, a better infrastructure, it's kind of a boring topic, but that's something that, that I'm working on uh, this year. And really, that, that will enable me to work through just many ideas uh, more quickly. Um, so uh, a, a lot of them are related to, um, to just analytics um, or enhancements on my current strategy, you know, the equity strategy. There are, you know, other asset classes that I'm developing uh, edges in. And that's usually how it starts, which is um, develop an, an edge. It, it works in a lot of currency pairs or it works across related futures markets. And then from there, one can, you know, delve further into, you know, how can I uh, exploit this? Um, you know, what capital would I apply to this? Uh, you know, obviously it raises a lot of questions, but uh, so I have a, a deep list there slash far out stuff perhaps is just uh, looking at um, various uh, – whether it's you know fractal formulas or uh, formulas uh, related to um, you know biology and so forth, uh, th those are those are things that I'd like to um, go deeper into, but they're a little further down the list. So you know it's um, I think we might have talked about it, Aaron, uh, just casually the other day, but the um, separating ones, um, you know. Uh, Isolating oneself uh, away from distraction is really, I think, crucial for development, at least for me. So uh, that has to be a um, very, uh, you know, a specific uh, time of day. Um, has to be uh, the right day. It has to be, uh, or a regular schedule. Whatever it is for for everyone, it's going to be different. But I, I, I'm a believer in intensity, not necessarily time. Having the schedule is good. Having the time set aside is important. But then. Intensity, uh, being undistracted, so once you can have long thoughts. I think that's really important, and I just mean uninterrupted thoughts, where one can just go through a hierarchy of logic in one's mind as one's coding. Keep that all there, you know, cached in one's mind as one's working. That's really important to my process because if you allow the constant interruptions, then uh, you can you can lose some really phenomenal things that you might be on the verge of, um, you know, of of developing and, and codifying. So, um, kind of a long-winded answer, perhaps, to your question, but you know, th those are just a few of the areas that I'm I'm really looking at and and how I think about them. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I think. Um We'll have plenty to talk about uh, next time you're on as well. By the sounds of things, I'm blanking on the the, the man's name at the moment, but uh, he wrote a book called Deep Work, and it sounds as though I haven't actually read the book. I've read like a few reviews and a bit about the subject, but it sounds as though that's kind of like what you're talking about there. Um, another word for it is uh, deliberate practice. 
you know, it's, it's one thing to spend a lot of time on something, but are you actually spending, um, that time in the most efficient way? Like, are you actually, you know, totally engaged with what you're doing or have you got distractions, uh, coming left, right and center? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I don't know that book, but, um, but you'll, you can tell me about it later. I'll Google it, whatever. But yes, that's absolutely, uh, I'm a believer in that. And, you know, I'm older than you. Um, you know, I've always had a serious bent, but when you see your own theta, you know, your life as time decay, <laughs> which sounds pretty dark, <laughs> but I'm just putting it in the option terms there for a moment, but you, you know, you, you, you do dig deeper. Um, I mean, I do anyways, um, just dig deeper and go, all right, you know, this, this, and this other thing, and this other thing, they have to fall away because they're just, they just don't rank anymore. Uh, you know, I thought I would do them. I thought I'd get to them, but you know, I'm jettisoning them because I am doing this and I'm doing this other thing and that's it. And, you know, you said, uh, deep work. I think you use, use that title. Um, you know, I just think of it as long thoughts. And I also, that phrase intensity, not time, uh, because you can have a block of time and do very little with it. Um, but you can have less time and do tremendously well with it. You know, one trick, uh, I think uh, this, I saw this, I've been using this trick for a while and I don't use it every day, but I get into periods where I use it, where I had set, set a little kitchen timer, uh, a little egg timer. And um, that's a nice trick because you can set that for, you know, 25, 55 minutes, whatever it is. And that's your focus time. I mean, you can let nothing go except your task at hand for that period. Um, it's a little, you know, it's a, just a little uh, kind of a crutch or device. Obviously, um, for longer things, it's not going to work. Uh, but for, for tasks, staying on task, it, it can be, uh, it can be a, a good device. Yeah, that's called something, that tactic, isn't it? Is it Pedora? Something like that. I probably just got that really wrong, but... <laughs> I don't know. I, I did see a, um, I, I saw an article, uh, within the last year, you know, it was like came, you know, in my inbox, uh, and, and it did have, it did have a name. Um, so I guess it has a name. Yeah. Where you spend like 25 or 55 minutes or a certain period of time. Um, and you just purely focused for that amount of time. And then you have a 10 or five minute break um, where you just do absolutely nothing. You just kind of zone out and then just smash it again for another 25, 55 minutes, whatever it is. Yeah. I've read a couple of things about that actually, but, um, just going back, um, the, the man who wrote deep work, I can't believe I'm, uh, blanking on his name right now, but, um, I'm actually trying to get him on the podcast, not a trader whatsoever, but honestly, I think, you know, a lot of what he talks about, um, and is knowledgeable about will be very relevant and beneficial to, uh, traders and, obviously listeners of this podcast. Um, just speaking of um, um, <laughs> talking about your life in terms of uh, theta or decay um, <laughs> and being kind of dark, uh, you might appreciate this as you appreciate uh, data visualization, but there's this very, very simple chart which I've seen floating about online. And across the x-axis, it's got weeks and a year. Okay, okay. so it goes from okay. 1 to 52. And then down the y-axis vertically, it's got ages. So going from like zero to, I don't know, 100 or whatever you live to. Um, and each little circle on that chart represents one week of your life. And um, I just think it's so powerful. I've 
you know, I was set, my girlfriend's heard me go, I, you know, mention it. And she thinks it's really dark and, and kind of strange, but I think <laughs> it's like, I think it's really motivational. I think it's um, very powerful to look at and see things displayed like that. I, I'm going to look for that, Aaron. It, you know, it makes me think of, uh, you know, I like to sit in uh, Zazen, you know, just a traditional, simple sitting Zen practice. And Dogen, a Zen master from, oh gosh, I, I, you know, 1200, I think, uh, I'm probably off, but at any rate, he's kind of revered just for his writings. Um, and I think it was him, although maybe it was somebody else, but I, maybe I, Dogen was, was quoting him, whoever the other, um, you know, Zen practitioner was, but bottom line just said, you know, sit like your head's on fire, you know, which to <laughs> me is, you know, sit with intensity and practice now, you know, it, it, see, see, you know, carpe diem essentially. So that can be applied in all, all aspects of life. So I think about that a lot. I think about um, just solutions. You know, there are so many obstacles to anything great, uh, you know, trying to be great um, that you have to push through obstacles. So, you know, solutions, solutions, solutions is just another mantra. I think about that every day. At some point, I just go, you know, uh, solutions, man, just got to find the solution to this. Uh, and it might not be trading related. It might just be, you know, life. But that, um, these things are important, I think, for the trading mindset. I mean, we're talking about quantification and, and you know, in data and logic and so forth. But um, there are there are times that are really challenging as a trader, and you really have to have a resiliency mentally um, that can be you know multifaceted, from staying fit to um, having a you know just doing the things you need to do. I chill out incredibly deeply, unless I can't. But on Sunday, at least. For the afternoon into the evening, and I I don't look at screens usually, um, and you know that's just like that's absolutely it's like a refresh thing. Um, so I can start Monday full force, uh, and I I completely um, you know slowed down. So you know they're just little tricks like that. Everyone has their own way, you know. But I I think they're important to to have that healthy mind and and so on. No doubt, no doubt. On that point, Dave, let's sign off. Um, where can listeners go to find out more about you? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, alphatative.com. That is uh, a website that um, uh, people can check out. And, um, you know, uh, I'm on Twitter at alphatative. Uh, I'm not super active, but, you know, those, those would be good places to look. Okay. And do you just want to spell out alphatative for us so that listeners can easily find you on Twitter? Sure. It is A-L-P-H-A-T-A-T-I-V-E.com or alphatative. There you go. Yeah. At alphatative on Twitter or alphatative.com. Um, and what's the go with your site? Uh, I've been to it a few times. You've got to put, uh, you've got to sign up uh, to, to view it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And and that's something I can't really talk explicitly about. But in other words, you know, it, it is not available unless you read through that um, and then agree to those terms because, uh, you know, just the nature of, of um, you it's know, business. the alphatative activities. Exactly. So unfortunately, that that's what I can say. So, um, you know, just uh, just meeting meeting requirements and regulations there. Yeah, it's there because it has to be. 
Yes, yeah, thank you. Perfect. Dave, I'm very grateful for having you back on, man. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you very much. Aaron, a pleasure as always. Uh, love what you're doing. Keep it up. And, uh, you know, thanks for the opportunity. Sure thing. We'll talk soon. Beautiful. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Oh, 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 oh